Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we're continuing our series, Psalms of Refuge. So turning your Bibles to Psalm chapter 5, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Will God Hear My Prayer? Psalm 5 is another example of a morning prayer. You know, the psalm seems to take for granted that prayers to God are offered at morning and at night. So following that formula, I think, would be a great practice for every Christian today. Unlike Psalm 3, and perhaps unlike Psalm 4, Psalm 5 provides us with no context for the time period in David's life when it was written. The heading that was provided simply says, To the choir master for the flutes, a psalm of David. So it seemed by the time that David added this psalm to book one of the psalms, music had already been provided to sing Psalm 5. And we, of course, don't have that music. All we're left with is a directive that this psalm is best sung with the music of flutes. And after that, all we're told is that it is a psalm that was authored by David, who is the king of Israel. So what is this psalm all about? See, I've noticed that a number of different commentators attach, you know, a different title to the psalm. From my vantage point, this is a psalm for those who are going out to the temple for morning prayers with a word of warning or a word of wisdom not to approach God lightly. Think about who it is that you're approaching and remember who it is that God permits to enter into his presence. And that seems to be the theme of the psalm. And for us, who now read this psalm in our time period, you know, this psalm will provide us with wisdom as we enter into the Lord's presence to worship. What kind of a God do we have? Should we be cavalier in approaching God's presence? Should we assume that anyone can come? Should we be afraid? Should we be bold? As we bow the knee and approach the throne of grace, how should we understand that experience? Now, these thoughts are not only expressed in Psalm 5, It's a question the Bible addresses. For instance, Psalm 24, 3 and 4 says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? And then it answers the question. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Now, the holy hill in Psalm 24 refers to the temple mount where the faithful would walk up the Kidron Valley up to the height of the temple. Who's invited to do that? Asks Psalm 24. The answer is only those who have put aside their sin. Now, in our day, see, that question seems almost impossible to consider. Of course, so many in our culture would say, anyone can approach God. To even suggest that someone might not be welcome to come before God in prayer, well, that seems outrageous to a great many. Nevertheless, in spite of the current surprise that such a question should even be asked, Psalm 5 does ask it. We might think of Isaiah 59, 1-2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. You know, live without genuine heartfelt confession and repentance, and God says, I've got no interest in your prayers. I will not answer you. Well, with that biblical background, let's launch into Psalm 5. We're going to start by reading the first three verses of the psalm. Here it goes. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. 
O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. David has gone to the tabernacle. It's morning. It's the first order of the day. He prepares a sacrifice, and according to the law of Moses, the daily sacrifice to be offered both in the morning and in the evening it included the sacrifice of a male lamb and a cereal offering with oil. It was the priest who offered it, but David comes to present his offering. It's the morning offering of prayer. But as he's come, notice that he uses two words to describe his prayer on this particular morning. The first is the word groaning. Another translates this as sighing. The idea behind it is it's a quiet murmur or a whispering that others around can't hear, or if they do, they can't really understand. We imagine David's lips are moving and there's slight sounds that come, but you have to be very near him to hear what he's saying. But it's not just that David's prayers are quiet or under his breath. There's an emotional attachment to his prayers. The idea behind it suggests that his soul is in distress. He's ill at ease on this morning. Something's laying heavily on his soul. And he's quietly whispering out his agonized prayer. And he asks God to give attention to his disquieted spirit. Please listen to me when I call to you this morning, he prays. David then uses a second word. And the next word is the word cry. Give attention to the sound of my cry. And that gives indication of why David's heart is in turmoil. He needs help. He requires God to rescue him. And the next words are his words of address to God. He calls God his king. And these words are highly instructive because, as we know, David is the king of Israel. But David never thought that his kingship was absolute. You know, we've all heard of the divine right of kings. And behind that idea, especially in the ancient world, was the idea that no one had the right to question the word of the king. You know, some ancient kings even thought of themselves as gods, and so they would address the gods as one of them. They would negotiate and manipulate and so forth. And David, well, he knew that to be a lie. The only true king is the one who is God. Regardless of David's position in his nation, he approaches God not as a sovereign approaching a sovereign, but rather as a subject approaching a sovereign. And we have to imagine David bending his knee, his head is bowed down, and he takes the position of one who submits. And so that's the morning background of the prayer. And as far as I understand this psalm, the reason for David's disquieted heart, well, it's never actually revealed to us. And well, that might seem surprising. But in fact, what has agitated David's heart is not the important matter here. What's important is whether God will answer David when he calls, who may approach the hill of the Lord? And that's our question in our morning prayers. Will God accept my prayers? And after all, it's the question that should dominate our minds. We come to God perhaps like David, and we need rescue or deliverance. Perhaps we have enemies who seek to do us harm, and perhaps we're facing serious illness. Perhaps we're interceding on behalf of a loved one, and just like David, out of the agony of our hearts, we're groaning before God. Will he accept our prayers? And how can I know that my prayers are not in vain? Now then, that's the scenario of this morning's prayer. And the rest of the psalm answers the question. And as we read through it, we're going to find not once but twice a contrast between the wicked and the righteous. 
They are, if you will, a picture of the unrighteous who may not ascend the hill of the Lord, and then a picture of the righteous who may. In the first contrast, we'll highlight the character of God or the nature of God. You see, the first contrast invites us to consider who it is that we encounter when we encounter God. And then the second contrast between the righteous and the wicked invites us to consider the judgment of God, or perhaps, depending on how you understand these words, it invites us to consider the final outcome of both the righteous and the wicked. And so that's what we're reading. So let's start with verses 4 to 8. And as we read the words, remember the issue here is the nature of the God we seek to address. When we go to prayer, what is God like? Psalm 5, 4 to 8. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. So I hope you're paying attention to the contrast between the wicked and the righteous. You'll have noticed some of the attributes of wicked people. First, they delight in wickedness. Now, please keep in mind that those things that delight us, well, those are the things we love. And the things we love are the things that motivate us. So I hope you see that the wicked people do wicked things because in their hearts, the idea of wickedness is joy. It's delight for them. Second, they're boastful. That is, they're proud of themselves and they let others know what they've accomplished. And third, they're evildoers. Not only do they love evil, they do evil. And fourth, they speak lies. And I add to that the thought that later David says they're deceitful. They use lies to fool people, deceive people. And finally, they're bloodthirsty. The thing about the thirst for blood is it is a thirst to destroy others. There's something in them, says David, that delights when they've triumphed over others, that they have completely vanquished them. Now, the point here is less to do with what the wicked actually do, but with who God is. You see, James 4 verse 6 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And in Psalm 5, we learn that God forbids proud men and women from standing before him in prayer. This month, don't forget to ask for the Time of Your Life five-message Bible teaching series as our free Bible resource on CD. As you listen along and examine what the Bible has to say about how we use the time you've been given, you'll be equipped and encouraged to make your days matter for eternity. When you request your copy of The Time of Your Life, would you pray for more and more people to access these life-transforming riches in the pages of the Bible? Every day this teaching, verse by verse, reaches out across Canada and around the world on radio and print and online so that all might receive and experience a life filled with purpose. Back to the Bible Canada is so grateful for your support. To order the time of your life or make a gift to support this ministry, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. There are several words that should catch our attention in verses 4 to 6. I hope you notice them. They're about the nature of God. 
The first is the word hate. God hates evildoers. Next is the word destroy. God destroys liars. The third surprising word is the word abhor. It means to detest. God detests the bloodthirsty and the deceitful. In short, if we behave in this fashion, God becomes our enemy. And and I point all this out because the word that sums all of it up, well, that's the word holy. See, to be holy is to be set apart and distinct from and not to be a part of something. God has no part in the acts of wickedness. It's been pointed out that, you know, in the ancient Near East at the time of David, the gods of the nations around Israel were fickle. They would carry grudges, they'd lie, they'd manipulate, and they would regularly deceive. But the God of the Bible, the God who made the heaven and the earth, the God who sent his Savior into this world is not a God of wickedness. He is a holy God. He detests evil. Isaiah 57, 15 says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in a high and a holy place, and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. See, here's a God unstained by sin, a God who's righteous and a God who will never countenance evil. And that's why, according to Isaiah, we would never allow a spirit of pride to dwell within us. For if we did, then we would sin against God. And then how would we approach God? See, we must have a lowly spirit, a repentant spirit, with an acknowledgement that I am before a holy God. So if we approach God on any other basis, other than acknowledging that I am a sinner, that I have no right to approach his throne, then I must humble myself, you see. And let's get back to the contrast. David has been describing the wicked man who's thrown out of God's presence. So notice verse 7 again. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. Now, please notice, David doesn't say, look, the wicked love wickedness, but I don't. The wicked are bloodthirsty. I'm not. And since I'm cut from a higher cloth than they, I might enter the house of God. See, David never comes close to saying anything that makes him sound morally superior. No, he enters the house of God on another basis. And the key word here is what our translators have translated as steadfast love. It's one word in the original Hebrew. It's a very important word. And the Hebrew word here is the word hesed. And I'll come back to that meaning in just a little bit. But notice that David says that he enters the house of God through the hesed of God. And more, he says, through the abundance of your hesed. That is, when I come and look, I believe that I may enter. But the doorway through which I go through in order to enter your presence is a doorway that's overflowing with or has a super abundant supply of chesed. It's never ending chesed. Now, now that line from Psalm 5 verse 7 is a phrase that David borrowed directly from Exodus 34 verse 6. Moses has been invited to go up Mount Sinai and meet with God, and he's been praying for Israel. And in one of the highlights of our Bible, As Moses is standing on the mountain, God descends in a cloud and stands with Moses. And Moses, amazed that he's not consumed, then hears God speaking to him. God says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love or abounding in hesed. Now, there's a wider context to Exodus 34. The context is that Israel has sinned. They've made a golden calf idol and they've begun to worship it. They've become wicked, and God declares that Israel, that is, the entire nation, is worthy of death. 
And then Moses intercedes with God, and God declares he's going to forgive their sins. And it's that which leads to the statement that God is gracious, that he's slow to anger, that he abounds in this quality of chesed, steadfast love. It means that God has made a covenant with his people and that out of his nature and his character, that God has found a way to forgive them and extend his faithful love to them. They found mercy before God, even while they've been undeserving. And that's what David prays on that morning. He says, God, I know that the wicked are not invited into your presence because I know that you're a holy God and you won't tolerate evil. But I also know that you're a God of mercy to the sinner, that you've extended grace to all who come confessing their sins and laying hold of your promises in your covenant. Let me put that practically. Were it not for the truth that Jesus, our Savior, took our sins upon himself and that we enter into God's presence, not on the basis of our righteousness, but on the basis of his mercy. And what does the knowledge of that do for us? Well, for one, it strips away all our pride. We have to confess. How can I stand before a holy God? I can't. I need grace. I need a Savior. I need someone who would make me acceptable. I need mercy. And David says, that's how I enter the temple, and that's how I bow before God. I fear you, but you have abundance of steadfast love. You'll notice our text. David ends this section by giving us an insight into his morning prayer. He says, because of my enemies, and here he means because of the negative influence my enemies may have on me, lead me in your righteousness. Lead me in the way that's right. Okay, we've seen something of the nature of God. Now let's go to the second contrast that we find in this psalm, and it's found in verses 9 to 12. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels because of the abundance of their transgressions. Cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord, you cover him with favor as with a shield. You know, some of the early part of this second contrast is quoted by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3. You know, the lines, their throat is an open grave and they flatter with their tongue. Well, they're a part of the Apostle Paul's description of the universal sin that's found in every single human being. And that makes the point. We shouldn't be so quick to discount the description of the wicked and consign it to only a very horrifying group of people. That is, aren't we glad that we don't belong to that group? Rather, says Paul, if you're honest, you'll find it to be true of yourself. And when you do, you should be alarmed at the judgment to come. Things will not work out in your favor. And so when David in this psalm uses words that describe the wicked, so if I understand him rightly here, He's describing attributes that we're going to find in ourselves. All of us will have to confess that at times I lack truth. And then our text reads, their inmost self is destruction. And he means that wherever the wicked go, they bring destruction. They're treacherous. And when he says that their throat is an open grave, at the very least, that's an overwhelming image. You see, when the wicked opens his mouth, what are we looking at? See, the words that come out of his mouth They're a grave. That is, their words lead to death. They sow discord between people. They bring destruction. 
And then David adds, and I want us to see this in verse 10, notice his prayer. Make them bear their guilt. That is, since you're a righteous God, bring judgment on them. Don't let them escape. You know, keep in mind that this psalm is inspired by the Holy Spirit. David says things, not just what he wants to say, but what God wants him to say. God will make the wicked bear their guilt. They're going to fall by their own counsels. They're going to be cast out from his presence. God is holy. No one will escape his justice. And for those who are not aware of it, Jesus himself uses language that's even stronger than David. He spoke of those who would be thrown into outer darkness, where there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, I studied the matter of the gnashing of teeth before, and I think it refers to anger. The wicked are thrown into eternal judgment. They're shocked that they're there. They begin to weep, and then they're overcome by rage. I don't deserve to be here. But both David and Jesus say, yes, they do. But those who have experienced chesed, the loving kindness of God, those who've been humbled and confessed their sins and have pled for mercy, David says, they're going to take refuge in God. See, did you notice the difference? The wicked are the enemies of God. They don't even know it. The righteous begin by acknowledging their wickedness, and they come to God looking for his loving kindness. And in response, God protects and shelters them from the judgment to come. And the words of David are wonderful, refuge, protection, blessing of God. David says, they ever sing for joy. So David has come to God in the morning, groaning because of grief. That would seem bad, but it's not. He's come to a God who accepts him and welcomes him and answers his prayer. This day, the morning prayer will be wonderful. God will hear. God will act. He will do so for you. Thanks, John. Let me ask you, is there a particular attitude that we need to come to God in prayer with? And added to that, is it okay to come to God angry or disheartened? (laughs) Well, you know, because the Bible tells us to pray at all times, Ben, I I am sure that, um, you know, some of us might not want to pray when we're like that, but we should. We should uh, come to God constantly. I mean, you know, Put your complaints before the Lord. Surely the sovereign God hears our complaints. I mean, if there's something that, you know, the Psalms teaches us, it is that. So, um, but in the end of the day, you know, my hope would be that uh, after we've poured out our soul to God, we would uh, recognize again our humble estate before him. That's the attitude and call upon his name. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Psalms of Refuge, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible Teaching you can trust. As time speeds by, it's even more important that we consider how we live. That's why I'm so grateful for friends like you who walk with us verse by verse through the Bible. The encouragement we received recently from Ruth reminds us of how precious this is. Dr. John's teachings are fascinating and really bring the Bible to life for me. I can almost visualize the scenes in my mind, like watching a movie when I listen to him. I usually listen to the radio program at work and end up going home and rereading the passage he spoke about that day. And every time, I see it through different eyes. What a great way to use the time we've been given. With minds transformed by the washing of God's Word, We're given different eyes and God's own heart to see the world we live in. If you'd like to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, 
visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.